Entire societies and economies are built upon ethics and trust. But what happens if the public stops believing the word of businesses and other institutions? Can trust ever be rebuilt? And if so, how? Hello and welcome to our brand new podcast series, Transforming Business with Minter Ellison, Ideas and Challenges that are Shaping Our Future. In this episode, we'll be investigating an issue that, according to many commentators, could make or break the future of thousands of organisations in Australia. Trust. In the wake of multiple royal commissions, scrutiny of entire industries has never been greater, whether it's banking and financial services aged care, religious institutions, or disability and mental health services, suddenly everyone seems to be talking about trust and the lack of it. But what does trust really look like? How does it affect customers' relationships with organisations? And what can leaders do to rebuild trust with their stakeholders? In this podcast, we've gone in search of answers. Shortly, we'll hear from Minter Ellison partner Geraldine Johns-Putra, on how businesses can rewrite the rules to regain trust and, importantly, who should be responsible for doing that. But first, we'll speak with Rupert Younger, founder and director of the Oxford University Centre for Corporate Reputation, who was recently in Australia for AMP's Amplify Festival, which was sponsored by Minter Ellison. As a leading authority on trust and ethics in business, Rupert has some unique insights on how leaders can restore trust in their organisations. The first question I put to him was, why does trust matter so much in the business world? So trust facilitates um, all the exchanges that happen between businesses and their counterparties. Um, Every relationship that a business has will have some degree of trust embedded into it. Trust to deliver a product on time, trust to fulfil your commitments, all of that. But what trust really does is it reduces risk. It reduces the risk of transacting. If we think about that from a business leader's point of view and our kind of social licence to operate, if you like, how does trust contribute to that fairly significantly, presumably? So it's a, it's a great question because um, the last... So I, I've, I've been working on this subject and studying this for in, in a professional context for 25 years and uh, from an academic perspective for about 12. And I think the last five years has seen a very, very big shift in uh, the norms around trust in business. Um, what's happening is that uh, as governments are reducing their spending... Um, as businesses are expected to do more and as the rules and regulations around uh, governance and codes of conduct are are changing. uh, All of those things are putting pressure on leaders to perform in uh, ways that that focus on their character a lot more than on their capability. So the question of trust today uh, is really, I think, a question of corporate character. It's about how you go about the business that you go about and the uh, norms, expectations um, and, uh, and society's scrutiny of that 
has never been greater. Mm. And it's interesting, you know, because you see a lot of uh, what we call disruption in markets and in organizations, and quite often that's forced from an economic perspective, right? So uh, the global financial crisis forced organizations to restructure their businesses and operate in new ways. In Australia, we were kind of insulated from that in the financial right. services sector, for example, right? 25 but years of, uh, of effectively um, boom time. It, exactly. The entire generation of leaders have never, have never ever seen here a crisis, a financial crash. Exactly. And yet here we are in this situation post-Royal Commission where there is a, a flashing red light. There's a real imperative for organisations to operate differently. It's not financial, but it's uh, social. It's like a social crisis. That's how it's being kind of described. I'd call it a moral crisis. Okay, that's a good way of describing it. Tell me, tell me, why would you refer to it as a moral crisis? Well, I mean, the Royal Commission. I think, I think it would be sensible to separate out what happened uh, in certain parts of the financial services industry which then became the focal point of the Royal Commission, and actually what, has, what is happening more generally around business, not just in Australia, but elsewhere. Um, the particular criticisms levelled uh, at the financial services industry uh, were, um, were effectively um, ethical and moral lapses. Um, and these were particularly egregious uh, um, uh, because it was essentially the pursuit of a set of profit parameters over uh, anything that could be described as moral or ethically normal behaviour. The broader debate around business in Australia and, and elsewhere, I think just keeps coming back to this question now of changing norms. And um, I would think I would identify um, two or three, which I think are really, really exciting, but difficult for leaders today. Um, if you're a leader of a business today, you haven't got, first of all, that at that ultimate simplicity of the focus on shareholder value. Shareholder value, which has been a dominant theory since Milton Friedman's famous 1970 paper, uh, which said the only responsibility of managers was to produce profits for share owners. Uh, that has been a dominant um, leadership and management theory ever since the 1970s. And so entire, an entire cohort uh, of leaders over the last 50 years have operated under that um, extremely attractive, simple set of rules and, and, and norms. It's attractive not just because it's a singular um, goal, profits. It's also been very attractive, as has been proven across the world, because you can link your own um, uh, rewards and incentives to that single operating number. And so you've seen the, uh, the, the rise of some fairly extraordinary bad behaviour financial packets, uh, which have arisen from that single focus. Now, that norm is changing. And it's changing very fast. So it's changing through regulation. Uh, if you look at the UK, we've had since 2014 an evolution of the Companies Act, the Financial Reporting Council and the, um, and the stewardship codes, all of which are aimed at saying organisations need to think about stakeholders generally, not just about shareholders. Uh, you've got Elizabeth Warren, who's a um, presidential candidate in the States, uh, who, is, um, who is bringing forward her Responsible Capitalism Act. Uh, you've got the emergence of B Corps in the state. Uh, if you look at France, you've got the, um, the Société à Mission, uh, which are the, uh, the sort of uh, purpose-driven organisations. So around the world, you're seeing a rapid changing of norms about, uh, about what businesses are expected to do. 
Um, now, couple that with what we talked about a little bit earlier, which is governments withdrawing from traditional spend areas. And you've got this big gap that things need to be spent to achieve societal goals. They were traditionally the preserve of government, and now it's expected that companies will pick up the reins. But that poses enormous questions for leaders, because how do you cope with what's expected? Should I then become uh, not just an organisation focused on my core business, but should I be an environmental business? Should I be a community business? Uh, should I take on issues relating to cleanup? Uh, these are all things which haven't traditionally been what businesses have been asked to focus on. But in a very, very short period of time, the norms have changed. Well, that raises the, the million-dollar question, or we might call it the multi-billion-dollar question, of how do business leaders tackle this intangible concept of trust in their organisations? So the first thing I think is that businesses um, should never really focus on trust as being an objective. It's an outcome of all sorts of other things. Um, and, and also to recognise the distinction between active or given trust and trust which is just a utilitarian necessity. Um, uh, I think a much more uh, dynamic and useful um, uh, strategy for businesses is to think about uh, what we regard as the emergence of a new reputation economy. And the reputation economy is one where perceptions matter more than facts. So what you've got to think about is what, what sort of perceptions are valuable and useful uh, and what can I do to shape and help create the right perceptions. Now, the really interesting, I think, and critical frame, uh, and this has come out of our work at Oxford for the last 10, 12 years, is that there's really two faces to reputation. It's a Janus-type uh, concept um, uh, that, that all of us perceive individuals, nation states, or institutions and organisations really through two lenses. The first is perceptions of capability. How do I perceive your ability to do what you say on the packet. So if I'm an airline to get me from A to B safely, if I'm a bank to create clever financial products that serve my need, if I'm a construction company to be able to dig and mine and then extract the raw materials in the right way, all of those are perceptions of capability. The second lens has got nothing to do with how capable you are and that's perceptions of character. So, and, and character is really about perceptions about how you go about what you do. What type of organisation am I? Now, the really nice thing about the frame of a reputation economy is that you can start to decide which reputations matter and which don't. Because every leader needs to prioritise the resources they have. And, and the really nice thing about reputation as opposed to trust is that it gives you the ability to think about which reputations link to business objectives and the critical concerns that you have as a leader. That's the first real benefit. The second benefit of focusing on reputation and this, this super useful frame of capability and character is that you can start to understand the dynamics of reputation formation in a much clearer way and secondly who it matters to. So let me give you an example. If we think about the Volkswagen crisis, okay, VW and the diesel emission scandal, when you think about that, it's not a crisis of capability. No one's arguing that VW makes bad cars. What they're doing is they're arguing that VW has behaved badly in the way it's done its emissions and reporting. So that's a character fault. 
Now, if you think about VW, right, VW, for a start, it still exists today. It's still got a good reputation in lots of different ways. It's talked about in certain key key ways. But when you're thinking about a reputation, a capability reputation, it's very sticky. You don't lose it. Uh, it's very hard to lose that reputation for being able to make good cars. Um, character reputation, by contrast, is very volatile. Up and down, up and down. You can be a hero one, one day, a zero the next day. So the first interesting um, uh, sort of line of analysis that is, is that capability and character um, is it, it, it has differences in the way it's um, in the length of time it lasts and in how volatile it is. Okay. The second thing is, is who it matters to. Capability reputations matter to customers. Uh, character reputations matter to counterparties. So again, uh, that's super valuable for leaders. They can start to think about what to do and what to focus on linked to business objectives. So that frame of capability and character, um, I think is a much more intelligent, usable, workable frame uh, when you're thinking about the reputations of business, as opposed to this much more um, sort of solid and ultimately um, harder to attain issue of trust so it's about understanding the drivers of trust because you say trust is the sort of the result of a number of capabilities and so on it's understanding those drivers and prioritizing those drivers correct once you've clarified what those are so what do you think are going to be the the key issues that we'll be talking about over the next sort of five to ten years that will be some of those drivers of trust some of those issues that people really need to focus on i'm going to focus on two if i may uh, one is data uh, because data is um, a subject which 10 years ago you wouldn't have been having in the majority of businesses it was a sort of backwater where things got stored and no one really thought about data as valuable or indeed as something you needed to protect that norm has completely changed now organizations are expected to not only store data very, very um, carefully uh, uh, to maintain the, the ultimate fidelity of that data, but also if they're not using that data and thinking about its value, then they're seen as really an organization that's not fit for purpose. So the, so, so the first uh, big thematic is around what they're expected to do on a non-core aspect of most companies' business, which is the data they hold. Uh, linked to that, and I think this comes into the reputation economy um, uh, that I study and write about, uh, is this idea of, uh, of algorithmic uh, reputation scores, which are increasingly going to dominate almost every aspect of corporate and individual life. The example, I think, which is so interesting to, to explore is the development of China's social credit score system. So they've developed a social credit score system which will be um, mandatory for all 1.3 billion Chinese citizens next year. And they intend to use a series of five different viewpoints, two of which are normal, three of which are reputational, uh, which take a look at a much more holistic picture of that individual and what sort of score they can have in terms of their citizenship. Now, as those sort of algorithmic approaches to reputation economies take off, um, it's going to fundamentally change the, the perceptions that we have about fairness um, because we're going to suddenly find ourselves unfairly, in our view, treated by uh, an algorithm uh, that, we, that we don't understand how it's reached its outcome. 
Um, so we're doing a lot of work at Oxford on uh, this question of explicability. So we understand what goes into algorithms and AI systems. We can see what comes out. But how does the bit in the middle get explained? And that's about the reputation of AI and also the role that AI plays in determining reputation scores for us all. Um, when you think about China, and we all probably start to take a step back at the idea of a single credit score number dominated by the government, but um, most of us in Western economies uh, uh, don't realise that we're also rated and judged just as freely on just as daily a basis as that. Anyone who's got an Uber, um, uh, who has an Uber account, will, will know they have an Uber rating. And their, and their Uber rating is willingly given and willingly taken, and it has significant issues about the way in which you uh, will interact with, with, with that app. So we're all rated, and the emergence of a rating, rating world, a rating economy, a reputation economy, uh, is here to stay, and it's going to get far, far more pervasive. If we think about the Australian media and uh, and I guess the consciousness if you like in Australia at the moment we're all highly cognizant of all of the royal commissions that have gone on gone on recently and it's forced us all to question how much trust we have in a lot of institutions and industries too if I'm a leader of one of those institutions what are the pros and cons of trying to be if you like a first mover and acting alone to try and address the the, the level of trust that is amongst my stakeholder base versus trying to work collectively with the broader industry? Well, you're right to focus on pros and cons. Um, uh, uh, industries are very difficult. Uh, it, it's very difficult to, um, to work to resolve collectively the entire reputation of an industry sector. Um, simple practical things uh, not every institution will have the same objectives uh, not every institution will want to speak up on certain issues um, uh, so uh, that 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 attempt at institutional consensus often breaks down for some very self-interested reasons uh, for that reason you do get um, uh, big institutional bodies like the like you know the banking societies or the mining and metal societies or you know, these sort of um, uh, industry groupings and they are of course charged with trying to um, make sense of these competing interests, pull it together into some form of united policy statement and then make uh, representations um, on behalf of the industry around reputations or policies or whatever. Um, my observation is that, uh, is that they perform a very valuable function but you're never going to achieve a reputational rebuild through a sector organisation alone. It's just it, I don't think you've ever seen it, and uh, but but equally you can't ignore that that drumbeat of sector-wide norms, which industry bodies are very good at doing. So that has to happen, but it's not going to break through. The really uh, interesting moments are when organisations decide to take leadership positions in response to um, bad behaviour. Um, so uh, mainly around character, but sometimes around capability, which normally uh, is around disruption. Think about the um, emergence of Airbnb. Um, Airbnb uh, is a uh, is a capability disruptor. It it took on uh, the um, the norms of the hotels industry, uh, which was inflexible. You have to book in advance. If you book late, you get high prices. All of that stuff, where the series of perceptions that existed, irrespective of facts, 
and they dramatically changed the capability perceptions in that sector. They said, actually, we can do it much, much, much differently. Uh, and they entirely ran this on a reputation model. Interesting stuff. So technology and social media mean that organisations encounter and, and face multiple voices that impact their reputation uh, from multiple stakeholders. How can organisations ever hope to keep up with all those multiple conversations that are happening all around them? I think organisations have had to deal with multiple voices for a very, very long time. Um, it's just that they've been able to work on them at a slower pace and they can divide their messaging. So those two things are now what have changed completely. First of all, the pace at which you have to respond now to these multiple audiences is, is w incredibly difficult for organisations. Um, uh, the, 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 uh, the news flow, the speed of news flow and information flow beats any form of internal approval system into a cocked hat. Uh, so, so companies risk immediately looking slow, uh, um, uh, looking bureaucratic, uh, maybe even looking uncaring if it's been a crisis of, of you know, s some sort of a fatal accident, all because their internal governance systems are just unable to cope with the speed at which responses are now demanded. That's the first big thing. Um, the second thing is uh, what we refer to as context collapse. So this idea that uh, maybe 20 years ago, you could have a set of messages for your employees. You could have a set of responses and messages for your investors. You could have a set of messages and responses for customers. Today's world is a context collapse world. You now have to have the same messaging for everyone uh, because any, in any, any nuance change uh, will be then um, shared, compared, contrasted and called out um, uh, as some sort of inauthentic inconsistency in what an organisation is talking about. That was Rupert Younger from the Oxford University Centre for Corporate Reputation. The process of rebuilding corporate reputation goes right to the heart of a business's social licence to operate. So we spoke to Minter Ellison partner Geraldine Johns-Putra to find out more about the new ethical requirements that are being introduced for businesses in Australia, how those can be met and what senior leaders may need to do differently as a result. Geraldine is a partner in the firm's corporate and mergers and acquisitions practice, with a particular focus on corporate governance matters, including environmental, social and governance, director's duties and the intersection of business and human rights. First up, we asked Geraldine to reflect on any current examples where ethics and social responsibility are being escalated for business through government and legislative action. Yeah, most certainly. I mean, we're seeing it in a variety of areas. Uh, we're seeing it, for example, in the human rights area, where uh, the Commonwealth government in Australia has recently introduced an act to require reporting on modern slavery risks uh, in supply chains and operations of, of certain businesses. We've seen it in regulations or in standards issued by the Australian Accounting Standards Board around uh, reporting on climate risk and other non-financial risks. 
Uh, those are just a couple of examples in the human rights and the sustainability area. Uh, I think in general, just as an observation, what we're seeing is um, government is trying to legislate in an area that is almost the, you could say, the, the sort of interior of um, uh, an organization as opposed to the exterior. So the interior being the culture of the organization as opposed to the exterior being the sort of social impact or the, the, the transactional impact of the organization. So, so we've now got, we're seeing government really trying to impact um, people's intentions and uh, organizational values, right? As opposed to, um, which leads to behaviors. But it's much easier to legislate in relation to to behaviors and uh, contracts and you know transactional activities, it's difficult when you're actually trying to influence what I'm talking about, which is the values and the intentions. So how how government's doing that is through uh, disclosures. So asking organizations to disclose the risks of modern slavery in their supply chains or disclose the risks of um, climate impact in their activities um, and and to uh, be more responsible in the way they're incentivizing their executives or in fact their entire workforce. So because it's so difficult to legislate in that area, what's happening is we're creating either we're creating this sort of disclosure or transparency regimes um, or Another way we're doing it is we're creating incentivizations or consequence management regimes. Uh, another way we're doing it is we're creating a, uh, this is mainly through regulation and guidance from regulators, we're creating an environment where we're encouraging, for example, in the financial sector, the prudential regulators doing this, encouraging self-assessments. So we're asking, we're not saying you, you um, must stop modern slavery or you must implement certain punishments for your executives. Uh, we're actually saying we want you to, to disclose them. We want you to be introspective, to, to make the assessments, and we want you to provide the appropriate um, incentivizations to your executives and your employees. And that's how this sort of trying to work on values and intentions is expressing itself in the world of law and regulations that's more used to impacting uh, behaviours and transactions. How about the, the world of B-certified corporations? I believe you've done some work in this space. Can you, can you tell us a bit about how that works? Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the B corporations, they are, uh, for me, a corporate lawyer, they, they really got me going in terms of finding something that was going to make a difference in my, from my perspective, something that I could get quite passionate about. The B corporations uh, originated in the US and they are actually um, a, a voluntary certification model, right? Like fair trade is to coffee. This is the example that's often used. So a B certified corporation is a normal corporation that uh, has, has, voluntarily signed up to be tested 
and to meet certain ob uh, objective standards in governance and employee engagement and environmental practices, uh, and it gets a tick. That is an interesting development in itself. But what's even more interesting for me as a corporate lawyer is a, a, a movement, an advocacy movement to, to get the laws changed uh, around the world to allow a statutory version of this. And the statutory version is to create a company, uh, well, uh, to take a company that already exists, for example, in Australia under our Corporations Act, and that company would adopt and shrine in its constitution a purpose, a general purpose to be of benefit to society and the environment. And then if it wants to, a specific purpose, a specific benefit purpose. And it would also have uh, additional considerations that its directors would have to take into account when making decisions. And these are multiple stakeholder interests. So interests of the employees, interests of the community, interests of the environment, uh, and so on. And then the third thing it would have to do, in addition to the purpose and the director's duties, um, the addition to the director's duties or the matters that the directors have to take into consideration, the third thing is to be transparent and to have a, uh, to issue a, an annual report, which goes back to that transparency point that I was making earlier, that this is how you actually impact the values of a, a corporation. So, so where we are at and the work I'm doing with um, the B Corporation uh, not-for-profit is to uh, advocate for statutory amendments to our Corporations Act to create this optional framework that companies could adopt. And it has been uh, successfully passed in 34 states in the U.S., so it's not something that's completely foreign or, or I mean, it is hasn't obviously occurred in Australia, but it's not completely alien. It actually has uh, occurred already in the United States, in the majority of states there. And it would just give corporations uh, a tangible way of differentiating themselves if they want to show themselves as you know, trustworthy, as taking into account the interests of multiple stakeholders. Oh, that's interesting because I was going to ask you about that. I mean, obviously, we're seeing increasingly, I think, a in the, in the wake of royal commissions and, and other developments, an increased expectation and, if you like, awareness of the responsibility of boards to to really take on uh, sort of trust and conduct uh, and to fulfil their obligations towards multiple stakeholders, and that I think. Is very challenging for, for for a director to to have to take into account the shareholders, employees, customers, government, community, and so on. Um, do, do you have any sort of general ad advice in terms of the sorts of processes that board members can undertake to ensure they are fulfilling those obligations? Yeah, from a practical perspective, you're right. It's it's and this is feedback that we get from directors. Uh, quite frequently, you know, they already have so many uh, obligations, so many responsibilities, so many issues to consider. Uh, it's, it's, it's not as easy as, as it looks, right? Um, we, we are seeing different things emerge from clients. One of the uh, more interesting and practical ways that a board can operate, and these are boards that run quite complicated organizations, is to uh, request 
information coming up through management that reflects those different stakeholder interests, those different voices. So what does the customer voice look like on this particular issue? What does, um, what's the reputational lens, which is really, you could say, maybe the voice of uh, the media or the voice of the community. So you, you, what the board needs to do is to look at the uh, particular decision that they're being asked to make uh, and ask for that lens or that voice to be expressed. And, and in, in an organization that um, is, is getting used to this practice, you would hope, and, and I, you know, I think um, you spoke with Rupert and he mentioned this, you know, there's this collapse of context, right? So the voices should come together. And in fact, Hain even mentioned this in, in um, the final report of the Financial Services Royal Commission, that there should be a convergence. And he says in the long term that or medium term, there should be a convergence of these views. I would say, I would go even further, I would say in a healthy organization that knows um, its place in the social context as a, as a social organization, honoring its social license to operate, those views should um, more commonly uh, converge, right? So that, I think taking that practical view of looking at every issue that directors have to look at, and looking at the different voices would produce quite um, would produce results that that promote trust. Mm. And, and referring back to that conversation that I had with Rupert, he talked about leaders being bold and ambitious in response to poor conduct and bad behaviour. And obviously that has an impact on the bottom line too, because we're seeing the investor community expressing a preference for organisations that really take on social responsibility and really live that. Can you just give me perhaps a couple of examples within Australia of how we're seeing that that, that develop? Well, the, the numbers uh, in terms of the amounts being invested uh, that are, are substantial and increasing. Uh, the Responsible Investment Association of Australasia, RIAA, they put out uh, from time to time reports benchmarking either impact investment uh, or responsible investment. And they have a categorization of those types of investment. Impact investment is where the investor is actually trying to make a positive contribution, trying to influence the um behavior of the uh company or the organization that they're investing in and responsible investing is less active it it can take the form of um uh, a more passive negative screening for example simply not investing in certain companies that are in certain sectors so responsible investing is wider than impact investing but the numbers are the increases. Your impact investing has gone from 1.2 billion at the end of 2015 to 5.8 billion at the end of 2017. And then it's multiples of that if you're looking at the wider responsible investment, which is 866 billion, right? So that's more than 50% of assets under management um, in Australia. So has this sort of responsible investment screen to it. So, yeah, the numbers are there. I mean, you can drill down and test 
what what is actually the meaning of that responsible investment badge. Um, but at, at least we know that the uh, funds that are being invested have some sort of um, screening to them. That's interesting. It really feels like trust and reputation have, have dollar figures attached to them now. But nevertheless, trust and reputation also, it can feel quite nebulous. It can feel quite abstract when, when we talk about trust and reputation. It's hard to grab hold of it and, and really bring that to life. If we think about it practically from the point of view of business leaders, like who within an organization should be responsible for this idea of trust, this notion of reputation? Well, in our legal and regulatory and governance systems, the responsibility lies squarely with the board of directors of a company, if you're talking about a company. Uh, and it's it's not possible um, to get away from that, given the this, this legal structures that we have in place. The board is the ultimate decision-making body of a company. Um, and, and the Hain report also was uh, unequivocal in saying that it was the responsibility of the board. So uh, I think that, that that's the that's the basic answer. But how a board goes about doing that uh, is where the rubber hits the road, right? And we talked about some things that a board can do, the decision-making um, the different voices it can seek to have heard at the table, even if not physically, but they themselves can try and interpret those voices or, or to guess what those voices would say. Um, but the, what else they can do, given that boards are uh, largely made up, in, especially for larger organizations, made up of independent non-executive directors, um, there's a specified number of them that have to be independent and, and they are non-executive, so they're not in the business. Absolutely. And, and so then it becomes a, a collective responsibility, doesn't it? And, and I think that's really where perhaps culture comes in because it, it's, and, and again, Hain was, was very vocal on the subject of, of culture uh, in his uh, findings from the from the Royal Commission. So all of a sudden, when you're talking about culture, you're actually saying that trust and reputation is something that everyone within the organisation has a responsibility for. That's right. So you're absolutely right. So the, the tone, the setting, you know, the, 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 where you face, the direction you face might come from the board, but the responsibility then cascades down through management um, the Corporate Governance Council um, of the ASX, when they put out their latest edition of their principles and recommendations of corporate governance, uh, made this quite clear that it, it really is about, you know, management setting the uh, board, setting the tone in management, ensuring that that, that cascades down through um, the organization. Then you're right, it becomes the responsibility of every person in the organization. That was Minter Ellison partner Geraldine Johns-Putra. For more information about these issues and to read our show notes, visit MinterEllison.com. 
Thank you for listening to this introductory episode. We'll be back with more episodes in the coming months. So subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you've got any feedback or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a line on social media or via the contact page of our website. And if you've enjoyed listening to this, then please check out our other episode, exploring another issue that could shape the future of business. We speak with Professor Nita Farah-Honey, a leading American scholar and Minter Ellison partner Jonathan Kelp, about the ethical, legal and social implications of emerging technologies. In particular, we investigate the risks and opportunities for business and society as a result of staggering new technology in the health sector. You can find that episode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. In the meantime, thanks again for listening, and goodbye for now. <laughs>